The National Archives podcast series, Finding My Father in Mesopotamia, presented by Jenny Lewis. Finding My Father has always been a, a lifetime search for me because he died when I was a few months old, having fought as a young soldier in the South Wales borderers in the 1914-18 war. And my sister, who is here, and I found a case containing albums and letters and documents pertaining to my father. Um, I'd been literally a few months old when he died. Gillian was two and a half or two when he died. So it was very exciting for us to come across this find. And what the album contained was photographs that he'd taken with a box brownie camera when he was fighting in Mesopotamia, which is now Iraq, in the war. And he was wounded at Kut al-Amara on the 11th of January 1917 and invalided back to India where he stayed and recuperated for some time. I'd like to start with a presentation showing you some of the photos <laughs> and explaining really how I became so fascinated, we both became so fascinated with his story that I came to live at the National Archives for three years. We looked up the war diaries of the South Wales borderers and other information about him, which resulted in a book which was published last month, Taking Mesopotamia. So where does the story start? Well, I've explained about finding the album and quite often it's uh, an incident such as that which triggers people's interest. And I assume everybody here is on or has been on some kind of search to reconstruct the past or a person from the past. Local history societies are another good way of finding information. Books and special interest magazines. The National Archives, of course, is the best and there are national archives in every country and uh, my friend Adnan who's going to be reading with me a little bit later some poems which he's helped translate into Arabic was telling me that the national archives of Iraq have been burned how lucky we are to be sitting you know on the Thames and in on a beautiful day with our archives safely held um, the internet of course is an amazing resource research and the great thing about it is you can look things up so quickly my own research branched out from the archives to the recent wars in Iraq and so I did a lot of covering of news reports and documentaries and was amazed and aghast at how often the same mistakes were made exactly the same mistakes that had been made in 1914-18 war were made again and then the other resource that I used a lot was the Imperial War Museum, the British Museum, and the South Wales Borderers Museum. This is a picture of my father when he just signed up for the South Wales Borderers. I was very surprised. I'd always imagined him a sort of large, jolly, cheerful person. And I was quite surprised to discover that he was five foot seven and he weighed eight and a half stone. Well, I very rarely weighed eight and a half stone in my life. I've always <laughs> sort of been pushing the, uh, you know, upwards of that. 
And somebody said in, at that time people were smaller because they, and a lot of the young soldiers that were, were drafted or volunteered to go and fight in the First World War, the one good thing they found was that they had regular meals. You know, they were fed by the army and looked after by the army. This is a page of the war diary and I, I actually transcribed two years of these war diaries. I put them all into ten-line little poems of rhyming couplets. Then I decided that rhyming couplets wasn't a suitable vehicle to express a soldier's voice, so I took them all out of rhyming couplets. I don't know how much you can see, but this actually says, on February the 15th, 1917, the following soldiers were killed on that day, killed or wounded. Killed, 2nd Lieutenant Danes and 18 men. Wounded, Captain Adjutant WMV Bickford-Smith, Lieutenant CJG Griffiths, Lieutenant Usher, 2nd Lieutenants HM Herbert, WE Hind, WR Barker and 72 men. And the note says here, we returned to camp to find it 18 inches underwater a night of great discomfort was spent, an issue of two ounces of rum per man helped to lift their spirits. And one of the things I found distressing when I was doing this research was that only officers are named in the, the intelligence reports. And so if you weren't an officer, you, you were just a nameless other rank OR. Here's a map showing roughly the area of Mesopotamia, Iraq, which of course goes back to the most ancient and sophisticated cultures in the world. This map I found very interesting because it showed battle strategy and I imagined someone sitting, you know, on a, on a tea chest, sort of drawing it in crayons. And I couldn't, however hard I tried to become <coughs> fascinated by working out battle strategy and remembering how my own sons would play endlessly, you know, with little plastic soldiers and setting up different types of battle scenarios. I, I just couldn't enter into it with any degree of enjoyment or interest. But I think that's something that soldiers, especially soldiers who have some clout, I think that's one of the things they enjoy. It's, it's about strategy, it's about battles, it's about winning, um, winning points. This is about the UK interests in Iraq in 1909. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company was set up in 1909 after oil fields had been discovered in Iraq, then known as Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers. Two years later, Winston Churchill, then first sea lord, bought a controlling stake in the company for Britain for 2.2 million. On the 6th of November 1914, the British offensive began with a naval force bombarding the old fort at Fowl, which was located at the point where the Shat al-Arab River meets the Persian Gulf. D force was made up mainly of Indian troops from the Pune Regiment. I thought that was another thing I was quite surprised about, that 75% of soldiers fighting in Mesopotamia in the First World War were Indian soldiers. On the 22nd of November, 
And just remember that on the 6th of November, they went into Iraq. By the 22nd, the British had occupied Basra, the Battle of Kurna. They were able to gain back control of their stake in the oil fields, and they could actually have withdrawn then. But the decision was taken to send a hopelessly underfunded and under-equipped force to try to take Baghdad, which led to four years of appalling suffering and over a million deaths. And I think the other thing I learned through my, my research here and at the uh, Imperial War Museum and other places was that war isn't just about land and geography and the economics, it's also about face, you know, and keeping a position in the world. And the British then, uh, the British Raj, was uh, seen to be the, the greatest force in the world, and that's how they wanted to keep it. And this is an interesting photo because that shadow there is our father, and so it's we. I can actually touch him. So that's incredible for me, for my sister and I, and that's maybe the nearest we'll get. That's actually his shadow, and he's standing there. And this is the, the army camp. This was the bridge of boats at Kerna. I mentioned the fact that in March and April, the southern Iraq floods. And so they had to cross the floodwaters by, by these bridges of boats. This is the front cover image for my book, The River Tigris Above Amara. And I, I think the naked man is very relevant because under, the, under all uniforms are naked people, men and women. And I think there's something very moving about this image. It's <coughs> the, the, the men look quite defeated and you can see this sort of utter futility, really, of war. And um, probably not very many of them came home. And these are just some of the other images my father took. Traders on the Tigris, hospital boat on the Tigris, halting place near Sheikh Saad, Basra, buying from Arab traders, a Tigris stern paddler, an Arab well, a Sikh soldier, Lord Gray of Falloden in 1919 in his memories and reflections, said, the best thing would be if we could say we had taken and gained nothing. Taking Mesopotamia means spending millions on irrigation and development with no immediate or early return, and keeping up a large army in an unfamiliar country with a perpetual menace on our flank in Kurdistan. So that the futility is, uh, I think that expresses it all, really. So uh, what I do, and Adnan does, and Amal does, is we write poems, and we hope that that can help in some way. So I'm, I'm just going to read you a short reading of some of the poems that came out of all this research. And for the final two poems, Adnan's going to come and join me. But um, this first poem, is about my father, and it's I dedicate it to my father. My face is made from yours, your jaw, your weak right eye, my shin bones from your leg, shattered in the moonlight, 
as you supervise the digging of the trench at Kut Alamara. Years on, your long dead smile watched us from walls, sideboards, from our mother's dressing table, casting a shadow round her heart, like your shadow in the album, as you pointed the box brownie towards the bridge of boats at Kerna, the army camp at Kut. Father, those splinters of bone were your salvation, hard shards from which I sprang with shared ancestry looking for you. As I was writing the book, I was very aware of how in another era, my own sons could have been sent to war, which made the research and reading even more painful. On the night my father was wounded, his friend, Second Lieutenant Evans, was killed, and the poem, the, the next poem is written in the voice of Second Lieutenant Evans's mother. Mother. Childbirth was like being excavated. My belly rose on whalebone wings. Pain soared about me like a blooded angel. Then you were born. I saw you with my own eyes. I held you day and night. You lay in my arms, a glowing pupa. At Kut Alamara, you were backlit. The moon pointed you out against the ridge. When Turkish gunners stopped your spade, you fell slowly, shedding iridescence. Each night in dreams, I fail to catch you. Your bones, the fragile quills, of rescued fledglings you placed by the stove for warmth. One of the structures of the book is a series of war diary poems in different voices. I mentioned that I took them out of rhyme because I thought soldiers wouldn't speak in rhyme. These were written after two years of research at the National Archives. The modern voices range between Iraqi citizens and American British soldiers and commentators. Um, and the First World War voices is mainly the voice of, imagined voice of my father. So this one is March 1916, Tom. My father's name was Tom. You think of deserts and date palms, but this place floods in spring. Temperatures below freezing, sand turns to bog. Just getting to Kerna was tough going. Everything sank guns, supplies, men, in a mounting tide of mud. The injured sloshed along on AT carts, screaming for morphine. We built a bridge of boats to reach the so-called Garden of Eden. Lanes were littered with rubbish. In between derelict reed hovels, we found the tree of knowledge. It was leaning crooked through a shell-popped roof. And this next one is also about flooding in April 1916. Floods three feet deep, often 20 in the old irrigation ditches. A man accidentally drowned. The rest, facing the enemy, camped on islands. Gun Hill, Norfolk Hill, Shrapnel Hill. Only reeds about two foot high for a makeshift cover. Each battalion had 60 vellums to cross the waters. 
500 of us British and Indian soldiers practicing punting, a strange regatta. We needed to find Noah and his ark before we started to go slowly, one by one and two by two, into the dark. I'll read you just some very short extracts from the actual intelligence reports of the South Wales Borderers war diaries that I took here from here. And then I'll read you the poem that eventually came out of them. And I know there's at least two or three other poets in the room, so they will know. And if anyone else is a writer, you'll know how hard it is to make um, creative work, whether it's fiction or poetry, out of research. Temptation is to le always leave too much research and statistics and data in. And somehow you've got to connect with the, the material emotionally before it becomes a poem. So this, these extracts are from the April 1916. There were violent storms. The mules bolted and men and mules fell into deep ditches and drowned. 5th and 6th of April, the assault on Fallahaya. A strong northwest wind drove the cholera-ridden waters of the Suwaikia Marsh into the trenches of the Meerut Division. The 7th and 8th of April 1916, the assault on Sanayat. It was bitterly cold. The men were wearing only khaki drill, no greatcoats. They were wet through and frozen. They woke numb and stiff with cold. They were also grievously hungry because the rations had not been issued as they had been held up. Because of losses at Fallahaya, there was a severe lack of officers and NCOs. The new drafts had little experience. It was night, dark. The only light was from flares and rifle fire. The attack started. The second line faltered and got mixed up with the third and fourth waves, which were pressing on. Many troops lost any sense of direction. They couldn't hear commands. The attack broke down. As dawn broke, the Turkish fire became more accurate and deadly. The British and Indian forces recoiled 400 yards back from the front line. The failure was due to cold hunger and confusion, and on that day, 50% of the South Wales Borders Battalion had been killed or wounded. And the poem that came out of that is called Baptism. They could have been made from stone, the same stone of country houses with walled gardens spurting valerian. They were freezing, coatless, cold as slate, when marsh water flowed into the trenches carrying cholera, and they went over the top in darkness to meet darkness lit by enemy flares, stumbling and drowning with the bolting mules, too numb to know what they were doing or which way they were supposed to go. Back home, the font was wreathed with laurel. It stood sunlit under an angel leading a child away from harm. I became very interested in military language, especially euphemisms and slang, the way that um, the military use euphemisms to distance 
human beings from what they're doing to other human beings. I found a pamphlet at, at the Imperial War Museum which was called Hints for the New Recruit, What to Do and How to Do It. And so I sort of gathered together a lot of the slang that, that had been used and made this poem. Hints for the New Recruit. It's not that hard to get yourself a soup ticket or even a rooty gong, especially in Mesopolonica fighting Johnny. If you have to join the suicide club, take precautions, such as making pretty sure you're never the third man. That's a sure way to get pipped, and you'll find yourself pushing up the daisies too sweet. Get yourself a blighty one, and you'll be in velvet. Better to be on the peg than on the wire, although both best avoided. If you're a base waller, get busy with the bluebell and blanco, send off a few quick firers, and if it's Thursday, get ready for a poet's. But make sure you keep your tin opener in good order, or you risk an early visit to the stiff's smoked haddock. And that last one is not only army slang, it's also rhyme, cockney rhyming slang. So I'd like to end now with uh, reading two poems that Adnan's going to join me and read with me. Um, they're both inspired by the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I discovered as part of the research I was doing. And of course, once you've discovered the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's in your life forever. And it, in my case, it completely dominated my life. It was written 4,000 years ago in ancient Iraq and found written on, on cuneiform, in cuneiform on thousands of tablets buried in the ruined palace of King Ashurbanipal at Nineveh. It tells the story of Gilgamesh, the god king, who sets out to defeat monsters and make a name for himself that will last forever, and also to find the secret of eternal life. So the first poem is about his, his lament for his friend Enkidu, who he becomes very close and loves very dearly, and Enkidu dies, and Gilgamesh has to learn how to live with grief. He's never had to do anything like that before, and the gods want him to understand what it's like to be human. So this is the test they give him. The second poem, he goes to find Uta Napishtim, who is the Iraqi version of Noah, and who survived the flood. And he says to Uta Napishtim, I can't die, I'm two-thirds god. And Uta Napishtim says, you have to die. And Gilgamesh has to, that's another lesson he has to take on board. Gilgamesh yenuhu ala enkido. To those left behind, the gods give grief. The Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 7. Liulaik alladhina yabkuna liyanalhum al-asa min al-aliha. Malhamad Gilgamesh al-lawh al-sabi. And this has been translated by Ghassan Namik and by Adnan. When I laid my hand on your shoulder, you turned to me. When you turned to me, I saw you weren't smiling. When I put my hand on your shoulder, you turned to me. When you turned to me, When I saw you weren't smiling, I knew the gods would punish us. When I knew the gods would punish us, I tried to placate them. When I saw you weren't smiling, 
علمت أن الآلهة ستعاقبك وحين علمت أن الآلهة ستعاقبك حاولت استرضاءها When I tried to placate them they closed their minds to me When they closed their minds to me I knew it was hopeless وحين حاولت استرضاءها صمت آذانها عني وحين صمت آذانها عني علمت أن الأمل مفقود When I knew it was hopeless I cut my chest with a knife When I cut my chest with a knife the blood spurted out وحين علمت أن الأمل مفقود طعنت صدري بالسكين وحين طعنت صدري بالسكين تدفق الدم When the blood spurted out a maggot fell from your nostril When a maggot fell from your nostril I had to leave your body وحين تدفق الدم سقطت دودة من منخرك وحين سقطت دودة من منخرك اضطررت لترك جسدك When I had to leave your body I wandered in the wilderness When I wandered in the wilderness I dreamed about you وحين اضطررت لترك جسدك همت في البرية وحين همت في البرية حلمت بك When I dreamed about you I laid my hand on your shoulder When I laid my hand on your shoulder you turned to me وحين حلمت بك وضعت يدي على كتفك وحين وضعت يدي على كتفك التفت إلي When you turned to me I saw you weren't smiling وحين التفت إلي رأيتك غير مبتسم وحين التفت إلي رأيتك غير مبتسم And I'd like to finish with the wise man Uta Napishtim advises Gilgamesh الرجل الحكيم أتنابشتم ينصح قلقامش Translated by Ruba Abugaida and Adnan Asai You're wearing yourself out with all this stress The Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 10 لقد ألبست نفسك كل هذا الجهدي ملحمة قلقامش اللوح الخامس Gilgamesh, you're headed for an early grave You're riddled with discontent Yet your life could end at any moment, cut off like a reed in the reed bed. يا قلقامش إنك تتجه لقبرك مبكرا أنت مدجج بالسخط حتى أن حياتك قد تنتهي في أي لحظة مقطوعة كقصبة في سرير القصب. The gorgeous young man, the lovely girl, in a flash. Death could hack them down, yet we go on grabbing as much as we can, feathering our own nests, squabbling over money, starting wars. الشاب البهي الصبية المحببة قد يقطعهم الموت في ومضة إربا إربا، لكننا نستمر ما استطعنا في انتزاع ريش أعشاشنا متنازعين على النقود بادئين حروبا. While all the time بينما طوال الوقت the river rises يطفو النهر and floods ويفيض the mayfly skims the water ذبابة مايو تنزلق فوق الماء the sun blazes down on us الشمس تتوهج فينا each day كل يوم until all of a sudden وفجأة 
it's over. ينتهي كل شيء. Until ينتهي. all of a sudden, it's over. كل شيء. This talk was recorded on the 15th of May 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.